This is Retail Retold, the story of how that store ended up in your neighborhood. I'm your host, Chris Ressa, and I invite you to join my conversation with some of the retail industry's biggest influencers. This podcast is brought to you by DLC Management. First, I'd like to thank one of our sponsors, Credit Intel. Knowing the financial health of retailers is crucial for the success of your retail-related business. That's what Credit Intel is for. Credit Intel analyzes the financial health of hundreds of publicly and privately held retailers in different sectors. With a subscription to Credit Intel, you have access to comprehensive analysis of retailers' financial condition and their expert analytics team. Visit creditintel.com for more information. What's going on, everybody? I'm Sean Jackson here, Director of Marketing at DLC, joined by Chris Ressa, host of Retail Retold. What's How's going on, Chris? Doing well. How are you? Um, thanks for having me on your podcast. <laughs> I just totally hijacked your podcast. But no, I wanted to sit down. It's with been you. a long time coming. For everyone who doesn't know, Rashawn's been behind the scenes in you know, getting this podcast up and running and launched, so thank yeah, you. I can't take all the credit. Of course, the fabulous marketing team here at DLC they do an amazing job getting this thing up. But uh, 10 episodes in, it's been, uh, been a, quite a journey, us trying to figure things out as we go and getting these new guests. How do you think it's been going so far? I learned something new on every episode, so it's been fantastic. And this week's episode, as you know, every Thursday we launch, and so we have a new guest every Thursday, and it's an interview format. This week, it'll be our 11th week, we have a special guest on Tuesday. We're still yeah, launching on Thursday. We have a special guest on Tuesday. We have Steve Dennis, just wrote the book, Remarkable Retail, and that book's launching soon. It's available for pre-order on Barnes & Noble and Amazon.com. And I'm excited because he gives a, he has a unique perspective as he was uh, one of the executives at Sears in the 90s in the strategy department. So he was focused on retail strategy for Sears. And he gives some insights as to what they could have done differently and he takes those lessons. He worked at Neiman Marcus and strategy at Neiman Marcus. So he had the high end department stories at the, you know, the middle of the road department store. And he's had a unique experience. And now he works with retailers all over the world with their retail strategy. He comes from that background, not necessarily the real estate background. I think he gives an interesting perspective on the state of the industry, what's going on. And he highlights a bunch of teasers for us from the book. And I think it'll be really cool for our listeners. Without giving it away, I mean, what's one key takeaway that kind of blew your mind a little bit? I think one of the key takeaways, it's specific to it was specific to that conversation, but just in general, the myth that it's cheaper to be a digitally native only concept than it is brick and mortar. And it's proving out that there are very few e-commerce only retailers that are profitable and you know there's truly he calls it harmonious retail and so i i think you know and he writes about that in his book and he gives some stats around that you know i, I won't give away too much but he gives an interesting perspective on what sears could have done to not be in the position they're in today and i think it would have been a fascinating Thing if they did that and they and he said it was really around a war room and a boardroom where they were like discussing if they should go this direction and they didn't and we'll never know what would have happened but i think it was uh really interesting this is a 
different episode than we're used to. It's a little outside the box. So I think people are going to enjoy this one. I, I can't wait to listen to it. Yeah. So it's going to be pretty cool. All right, guys. Stay tuned. Amazing episode. Hey, man, you got to have me on this podcast. We'll see. More. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Welcome to the show, everyone. Today, we have with us Steve Dennis. Steve is the president and founder of Sageberry Consulting. He is a Forbes contributor, and he is releasing a book on April 14th, Remarkable Retail. It is currently available for pre-order on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Welcome to the show, Steve. Thanks for having me, Chris. Why don't you tell everyone a little bit about your background and your company, Sageberry Consulting? Sure. So um, I guess I have a pretty uh, pretty varied background, though um, pretty much the last close to 30 years has been exclusively in retail. Um, I started working in strategy for a big consulting firm and worked in the food business for a few years. But in the early 90s, I joined Sears and was there for about 12 years in a bunch of different roles uh, on the operating side, marketing side, strategy side, uh, headed up the early multi-channel integration initiatives and was the acting chief strategy officer. Uh, Fortunately, got out of there before the Eddie Lambert days. And uh, then I joined the Neiman Marcus Group uh, as the head of strategy and also had responsibility for multi-channel marketing customer insight, private label credit card business, uh, and a bunch of other growth initiatives. And then um, the last 10 years or so, I've been out on my own, um, initially pretty much exclusively doing independent strategy and innovation consulting work uh, for retailers primarily. And uh, that's evolved over the last few years. I'm still doing that, but um, for the last three years in particular, I've been doing a lot of keynote speaking and strategy workshops and um, started writing for Forbes. And as you mentioned, uh, been working on this book. So now I really split time between working directly with clients and um, doing more, you know, broader uh, thought leadership and, and speaking. And what were you doing consulting for these retail businesses? Well, I work pretty much exclusively on uh, growth strat- growth and innovation strategy. So typically working with the C-level team on um, strategic planning or how to accelerate or reignite their growth. And I've worked across a pretty wide spectrum, some um, you know, very large retailers, technology firms, real estate firms that serve the retail industry. And I've also worked with a fair number of early stage companies. I'm on several advisory boards and I advise the venture capital fund. So I've been uh, doing pretty, pretty wide range of different product categories and, um, and sort of size and scale of, of retail companies. Any retailers that you could share with us that you have worked with in the past or are currently working with? Sure. I've worked, uh, uh, Nike's been a client, Google's been a client, uh, Tractor Supply Company, American Express, um, Visa, and then a few others I can't talk about. And then some smaller technology uh, or smaller entrepreneurial companies like Cola, which is a social impact jewelry brand, um, Crave Retail. Those are some remarkable brands to be associated with and have the opportunity to work with. 
Uh, really cool. What got you motivated to write this book and why is now the time that you are releasing it? So, um, I, well, I've been wanting to write a book for, for quite a long time. And I think the question was, um, you know, what, what was it going to be about and then really sitting down and doing it. But, um, I started, when I started my consulting business, I started writing a blog, um, I've written something like eight or 900 posts on that blog. And there were a number of themes that, um, I started to explore and I kept coming back to, uh, and then I took those, many of those ideas, um, when I started doing speaking and, you know, what really developed over the last, you know, let's say two or three years was kind of an overall perspective on how, on what was going on in retail, what was really important to focus on in some cases, um, dispelling some myths or common narratives and, and really trying to give guidance to, um, either audiences that are, uh, hearing me speak or, or consulting clients about what they really need to focus on, but also a framework, uh, to help guide them to making those transformational changes. And so it kind of developed as I was, uh, working with clients and, and doing these speaking engagements, I started to really develop a narrative and a framework that I thought was helpful. So I decided, you know, maybe a, a good way to reach more people and, and go into some more depth. Um, was to write a book. So that's what I've done. Thank you for giving us that perspective. Remarkable Retail, really interesting title, strong word, remarkable. What is the genesis of that and that being the premise of this book? So there's kind of a, a couple pieces. The um, so Literally, the term remarkable, uh, I've, I've borrowed from uh, my good friend, Seth Godin, um, some of your listeners may be familiar with with his work in general, but in particular, a book he wrote a number of years ago called Purple Cow. So, you know, literally by remarkable um, in the way Seth uses it, the way I use it in my talk and in the book is is this idea that you're doing something so powerful and different and relevant that people, customers want to talk about it. And um, the reason why I applied that to my talks and specifically in the book, is what I started to notice probably close to a decade ago was what I've referred to over the last few years as the collapse of the middle in retail. And what I mean by that is that if you look across what's happened uh, to the industry, you see quite a lot of success at one end of the spectrum, the, those retailers that are much more focused on value convenience, assortment, and so forth, you know, so whether that's Amazon or Walmart or uh, all price retailers, um, you know, all the et cetera, et cetera. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, more on the high end, more experiential, more um, specialty retail, you also see a lot of growth. Um, but the real trouble for the most part is in what I call kind of this undifferentiated and boring middle. And so even when people, so one of the things I talk about in the book and I've written about pretty extensively is um, when you talk about a retail apocalypse, um, it's really not very accurate, except it's quite apocalyptic if you're one of these retailers that is stuck in the middle. Define the middle for us, Steve. So, so the middle would be, you know, any place where you're really not, you know, you haven't picked a lane between whether you're really going after value, convenience you know, sort of functional retail, 
or at the other end of the spectrum, more premium or, or experiential. So, you know, retailers like caught in the middle, I would say, are, you know, Kohl's, JCPenney, you know, many others, some of, some of which have gone out of business that don't have the best price. They don't have a really convenient shopping experience, but they also, on the other hand, don't have anything particularly special or remarkable about their service or their product offering or other aspects of the experience. And what I talk about in the book is, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you could get away with being fairly average in a lot of cases because the customer did not have access to product like they do today. They don't have access to information about pricing and product quality. Um, there's a lot of friction previously in the system in terms of buying things. And so customers had to settle a lot of times for, you know, fairly average stuff. But since the, uh, you know, pretty much because since the advent of, of all things digital, um, there's really no places to hide if you're, if you're mediocre. It's just too easy for customers to find superior choices, whether that's on the value side or whether they're willing to pay more for something different, unique, and special. And so yeah, I think the data, data is really borne out that this is what's happening. I couldn't agree more. The one thing I would say is I don't think it's unique to retail. I think th this disruption is happening in multiple industries. There was a time and place where, you know, not too long ago where you could find a market where there was a segment missing, find a location, put some product in the store, and you might not make record-setting numbers, but you would be able to be profitable, whether you were a large-scale chain or, or an entrepreneur. I think today that's a lot more challenging to do. Uh, there's most market segments, at least the ones we have today, are covered, and you need to differentiate. Right, exactly. One of the things I, I, I used to say, and I would say five years ago, and I would love your feedback on it, is five years ago I would have said, in order to be successful, and I'm, I'm, I'm less talking about the premium retailers, but in order to be successful, I would say you need to either be have a value proposition, be convenient, or have an experience that draws the consumer to the store. And today, what I would say is you need all three. Uh, you take a company like TJ Maxx, who's experiential. They provide a value of a proposition. Their stores are well-located and they're convenient to the consumer. You take a, you know, it's the same for all the off-price guys, all the value guys, and, you know, like Dollar Tree, Burlington, Ross. And I think that, you know, if you're not that true value proposition and, you know, they have well-located stores, uh, if you want uber convenience, you know, really next level convenience and you want the product in hours or the next day. I think the one thing about that is there's a cost to that and it, it, it costs you. There's a segment of the market that doesn't want to pay for that. Or there is a segment of the market that can't afford that. There's certainly some retailers who are doing, you know, next day free shipping and, you know, all that, those fun uh, gimmicks that are going on right now. But I, I think in general today, still mm -hmm. convenience uh, costs more. And the, and the experience in a lot of premium retailers do an experience like, um, you know, restoration hardware and others. But I think, you know, something that Sir Latab with their cooking classes or Home Depot with their classes, I think you need to 
provide an experience of some sort to draw the consumers. So right. what would you say to that? And what would you say about experiential retailing? You really didn't touch on that. What would be your take on experiential retailing? And as much as I don't like the word, I don't know what your take is on the word, but you know, what, what do you say about experiential retailing? Well, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the issues with, and you know, I kind of hate to get into these semantic games, but I think, you know, there isn't a great working definition of, of experiential. I mean, to me, retail, I mean, anything that evokes the senses to me is experiential, which is, you know, life, life is experiential. So I, I think, you know, what's more useful to talk about um, when we talk about, so in, in my framework for remarkable retail, um, one of the components is what I call creating a memorable experience. And I think a memorable experience is defined by a number of factors. Uh, it has to be intensely relevant to the customer. It has to be authentic. Um, you know, ideally it has to be something that is, um, uh, sustainable or, you know, can be replicated at scale. Um, and it has to make, make a real impact. And so I think a lot of times, you know, things get called experiential that are kind of gimmicky, um, or don't, you know, like, you know, a lot of retailers are putting in coffee shops or something, you know, and they say, well, that's, an, you know, that's experiential. Um, you know, that's food service. It's not, you know, in and of itself, it doesn't mean it's not worth doing, but I don't think that in and of itself creates a memorable um, or remarkable experience. So, Agreed. Um, so I think we just need to, I mean, I agree that I think customers, if, if they're going to devote a lot of time or energy and make a special trip to some place, there's got to be something that's really memorable. Uh, and that can play out in a lot of different ways, depending upon the category and what the customer's trying to do. That's really interesting. I think the word memorable is such a sh stronger and probably better word than experiential. And it doesn't have to be something dramatic. Uh, one of the uh, guests we had on our podcast talked about a local mom and pop retailer that has thousands of customers. And one of the things that that owner of that mom and pop store was adamant about was remembering all the customers' names. They got a lot of repeat customers and he was adamant about that. And when you walk into a store and someone remembers your name, that, you know, what's everyone's favorite, you know, word is their own name. So sure. that's really memorable. So it doesn't have to be something dramatic, but, uh, and it can be as uh, simple as something like that. So it's a really good word to be memorable. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I I agree completely. I think one of the hard things, and you know, and I hate to be one of these people that that says, you know, it depends to every question, but I do, but I do think you know some of the um, some of the advice that's given um, to retailers, I think, is often at such a high level that um, you know there's these kind of sweeping generalizations that aren't particularly useful. What I've tried to do in the book is um, I lay out eight essentials of of the remarkable framework and i try to go through and describe what's involved with each of the eight and why they may be important to a particular retailer and give some specific examples but the guidance that i give to my clients and and i give in the book is you know you really need to look at your particular situation uh, i think you know most of the eight if not all of the eight will be relevant to most retailers but the sort of things that will be most important. So for example, um, one of the eight is what I call harmonized retail. Um, a lot of people call omni-channel. Um, and, you know, I think the, the need to 
get away from these distinctions between channels and realize that, you know, e-commerce and physical retail have to work in concert, um, you know, that will be more or less important to certain kinds of retailers, depending upon their situation. So, um, you know, I don't think there's any kind of paint by numbers prescription that's going to work for everybody. But I think, um, you know, what I've tried to do in the book is point out those things that I have seen um, be the most important for, for uh, most retailers in most cases and, and give some direction on how to put some of those practices into place. So I've read a lot of your content on LinkedIn. I've read some of your Forbes articles and I haven't finished, but I've read some of the book that you recently sent me. Can you give us one or two of the myths that you point out in the book without giving it away, but something that might be a good teaser for everyone and something that they might be thinking about differently? Sure. I, I mean, I'll, I think I'll mention two. One, I, I think, is starting to be better understood. But, um, you know, this idea of the retail apocalypse or that physical retail is uh, is going away. You know, I alluded to this a little bit earlier, but um, at least in the United States, um, physical retail uh, continues to grow. Um, obviously, e-commerce is growing at a faster rate, but um, and there is absolutely a significant correction going on. You know, some of that is a function of the overbuilding that's gone on the last two decades. Some of that's a function of the collapse of the middle we talked about, and just weak retailers that, um, you know, irrespective of e-commerce, weren't going to make it. Uh, and then some of it is certainly related to the growth growth of e-commerce. But, um, you know, there are, there are plenty of physical retailers, mostly physical retailers that are growing and profitable. Um, and, you know, the reality is if you've got a very valid value proposition, um, there's plenty of opportunities to grow. So I think this kind of idea that um, all hope is lost for physical retail is, uh, is certainly not true. And of course, one of the most ironic things is that many of the stores that are being opened are being opened on the part of these digitally native vertical brands that several years ago, their whole premise was they weren't going to need any stores. And now they've actually discovered that stores are probably going to be the biggest source of growth going forward, you know, brands like Warby Parker and others. Um, so so I, I think that's a big one. Um, I think the other is, is really um, some of the challenges in, in e-commerce is kind of related to this. I mean, the flip side of physical retail not being dead is that e-commerce um, as a distinct channel is not very profitable. Um, and we're starting to see a lot of growing pains. You know, return rates are very high online. Um, they, we're getting into these big kind of um, delivery wars where, you know, free delivery has become ubiquitous and the delivery windows are getting shorter. Um, and most of these venture capital, digitally native vertical brands aren't making money and don't look to have much promise of making money. So I think, I think there's going to be a pretty big shakeout um, on the horizon on, on a lot of these brands that have gotten a lot of press and caused a lot of disruption and pricing pressure, um, but won't turn out to be, you know, quite the, the stars that I think certainly the investors hope they would have been a few years ago. Wow, you hit on a topic that I think is one of the mis most misunderstood topics in retail, which is that 
online only retailing is really challenging from an economic perspective and it's hard to be profitable from that. And I think only now in the media over the last six months is it starting to percolate and starting to be front and center in the news. It still has a long way to go in the media, but I think it's something that needs to be talked about more. Uh, certainly there's companies that are gobbling up market share, but uh, is it profitable market share? All the returns, it's free shipping, last mile distribution. And one of the things I've recently, you know, really been hearing about are the customer acquisition costs, which is, you know, I've seen numbers as high as for digitally native only the, and online that customer acquisition cost is $200 and a brick and mortar store is $10. And obviously in a brick and mortar store, you have rent where you right. might not have that online. But when the spread is that big, 200 versus 10, if, if that is actually the spread, it, the the economics start to really be challenged. And so I guess my question for you is, when does this shake out? When do when does the VC world and investors start to say, you know what, uh, this is too much and we really need harmonized retail and you, you, the, the digitally only is really not practical? Well, you know, I, 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 you know, I wish I could, I could give you a, a you know, simple answer to that. I mean, I, I'm a little bit surprised, frankly, that it hasn't shaken out more than it has. Um, I mean, Wayfair is a company that I love to pick on, and you know, Wayfair to me is just an unsustainable business model, and it has appeared that way to me and some others for, you know, at least eighteen months. And they announce their earnings and, you know, they have great sales growth, but their profits get worse. And sometimes the stock takes a hit, but, you know, it's still valued at, I don't know, $8 billion or something. Um, so, you know, we're, we're having more companies, more of these companies are trying to come public. A few of them are public. I think the uh, scrutiny, I guess <laughs> it's probably charitable uh, that, you know, people are starting to look at WeWork and Uber and Lyft and Peloton and some of these other businesses that have very poor economics and wondering, you know, what needs needs to change. So, I mean, I think the, as you alluded to, I think the the scrutiny is going up. There's more awareness, but, you know, we haven't had in the last couple of years anyway, any real big flame outs. And I think it's going to take a couple of these these brands to really hit a wall and, and then they'll sort of cast doubt on on many of the others, but you know, who knows? I mean, that could happen tomorrow. It, you know, may take a little bit longer, but you know, a lot of these companies, particularly the ones that are starting to open a lot of physical stores, um, you know, their cash needs remain significant. Um, and you know, most of these store models, I mean, there's very few of these brands that have opened more than a handful of stores. And so there's also a real question as to how scalable, the stores will be. So I, I you know, I, I think in the next year or so, but you know, it's, it's hard to tell, you know, Amazon's been able to go a long time without making any money really in retail uh, and being, you know, just keep plowing it back in growth. But I mean, they have a whole different business model really compared to most of what we're talking about. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Playing devil's advocate a bit. I think the one thing that helps digitally native brands and uh, a lot of startups is the consumer has spoken and 
they want it more convenient and they want it now. And whether that's companies doing next day shipping or doing buy online pickup in store, whatever the format, and it, it probably looks a lot like harmonized retail. I think the reality is the consumer has spoken and they want it now. And I think it'll be interesting to see how that piece of it shakes out given mm-hmm. purely online is really challenging economics. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's a really interesting dynamic because I agree. I think, you know, consumers that, you know, the table, so-called table stakes, I think for, for a lot of customer experience has really gone up, um, you know, where um, delivery and returns and exchanges are easy and all these other kinds of things that are, that are costly to implement have become the customer expectation. And, uh, you know, you're getting into sort of these, these, um, these wars on delivery speed and just kind of upping the customer service, uh, all of which is pretty expensive. Um, and you know, that, that goes across the entire whole of the retail industry. Now, if you're Amazon or Walmart or target or some of these companies with, with deep pockets and massive scale, um, you know, you still may question whether it's kind of fundamentally a race to the bottom, but you know, they, they can afford to do it. A lot of other companies, you know, even some fairly big ones, um, feel like they have to keep up and they often don't have the balance sheet or just, you know, the, the margins to, to compete. So I think that this, this kind of constant upping the ante on, on customer service, um, and, and the growth of e-commerce, which has some pretty challenging economics is, is going to continue to put a lot of pressure on, on a lot of the weaker players, whether they're brands that have been around for a long time or or some of these newer brands that are trying to grow quickly. Any other good teasers, any other good information uh, you would like to leave the listeners with about the book that we haven't already discussed? Well, one, and, and it's, you know, it's certainly not an original point, really, but I think, you know, if you look at the the companies that are struggling, for the most part, they watch the last 15 or 20 years happened to them, you know, that they fundamentally did not understand how transformative many of the technologies were going to be and how quickly consumer preferences and so forth were changing. And they were afraid to take, take risk. And I think, you know, one of the lessons in the book, it's essential number eight is you really have to be fun. You have to take a more fundamentally radical approach to business and be willing to be much more experimental and take much more, more risk. That that's just the nature of the beast in retail today. And I would say it's becoming even more important because as far as I can tell, the pace of change, which has been you know pretty significant the past five years, 10 years, um, is only going to increase. And so it really takes, I think a different, different mindset, um, some cultural changes and some different, techniques and processes to, to operate your business going forward um, or you're going to get left behind. Um, yeah, it's a great point. It's one of the things that I really admire about Walmart and Amazon. Uh, they're, they're both really tasting and experimenting all the time, whether that's Walmart with Bonobos or delivery into your home or Amazon with four store or buying whole foods. I think, they're all taking a lot of shots and, and then eventually they hit ones that, uh, you know, that end up, you know, winning games and 
our big scores. So it, it's a great point, and I'm I'm glad you hit on that. Yeah, I think you know um, you know there's lots of cliches and, and quotations around um, taking more risk, but um, you know I think at least a couple of the retailers that I've worked for and I've worked with, um, you know, culturally they just were more geared to not making a mistake than really leaning into and taking more chances. And I think that that hesitancy to try stuff is actually the most risky thing you can do in this environment. You know, they, they think they're avoiding risk by being cautious and studying and only doing a few things, but actually they're, they're, they're creating more risk for their business because the only way you're going to succeed in most cases today is to try a lot of different stuff. Um, you know, you'll have a certain percentage, hopefully that, that are home runs. You'll have some that'll be singles and doubles. You'll have others that'll be, you know, glorious failures and, you know, that you learn from and pivot. And so it's just really developing this culture of experimentation and trying a lot of different things and, and developing a process to move through them. And that's, that's what Amazon and Walmart and some other companies are, are really good at. I mean, Amazon has made an, you know, a, a lot of mistakes <laughs> for the last few years, but they've tried so many things that they've also had a lot of things that have worked. So you, you can't be afraid to fail. You just have to develop a, a culture and a process to, to systematically fail, uh, fail forward, fail better. You know, some other people refer to it. So we're mentioning a lot about taking chances here. What retailer in recent time didn't pivot, didn't take enough chances, didn't, you know, uh, take some risk that could have changed their outcome forever and, you know, it, it, it went the reverse and they failed because of not taking the risk. Well, I mean, certainly one one I worked for was, was Sears. I mean, they're not quite gone, but as a practical matter, they're gone. What could Sears have done differently? Well, I believe, and I know some people, uh, a lot of people don't agree with me, but I think the single thing and maybe the only thing that would have saved Sears was to have uh, basically migrated their home and their home business off the mall, you know, to have become either to have acquired Home Depot or Lowe's in the nineties, which we did have an opportunity to do and passed on, uh, or, you know, potentially before those, those brands got too big to have developed its own home improvement warehouse because the, the strengths, the brands like Kenmore and Craftsman, Die Hard and so forth that were really strong, um, and had a lot of equity were ultimately, basically kept captive in a, in a failing format, you know, which is the moderate department store. So I think, you know, had, had that migration happened, you know, 20 or so years ago, you could have more or less successfully wound down the mall based stores as more apparel stores or sold that off and um, really moved your assets to where the customer wanted to buy them and gotten into a lot of other related categories. Um, trying, you know, trying to sell that mix of merchandise on the mall, um, you know, it's just not, was never, I mean, it was pretty clear by the end of the 90s that that wasn't going to work. It's one of the reasons why I left was, you know, we had worked on trying to figure out how to how to make that happen. And it was clear it wasn't going to happen. So, um, you know, it's been a, a very long descent because Sears did have a lot of assets that Eddie Lampert was able to, to unload. But, um, you know, that business was effectively been effectively dead for about 15 years. 
I actually had no idea. And that would have changed the, the landscape of retail if, uh, they were able to execute on that. Uh, really interesting. Really, uh, thanks for sharing that story. Use the word remarkable a lot. You talk about the middle. You talked about value. So why don't you tell us, you know, you talked about premium. Why don't you tell us who's a retailer on the value side that you find remarkable and a retailer on the premium side you find remarkable and why? Yeah. I, well, I think, I mean, I think, I think there are plenty. I think, I certainly think, you know, TJ Maxx, TJX on, on the value side is, is, you know, quite, quite a remarkable retailer. You know, they're remarkable in a, in a way that's different than say, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, I might, you know, pick out, say restoration hardware or, or Lululemon, you know, they, they obviously execute their businesses in very different ways, but, you know, TJX is able to, you know, operate a very efficient, um, fun place to shop with, with great value and a lot of interesting product discovery all the time and, and do so at a, at a huge scale. You know, when you look at say restoration hardware, you know, which I, I often point out their new, their new concepts because, you know, at a time where people are closing stores and making their stalls, stores smaller, and Gary Friedman and team went, you know, the totally opposite direction by investing in these, you know, huge palaces, you know, over the top presentation. But I think, you know, that's very um, relevant to their particular customer. And they create a real destination, not only for home decorating ideas, but um, as you may know, they have restaurants and you know other things that make it a real, real memorable experience. So, um, but I think I think there are lots. I mean, I think if you go down and look at the retailers that are are uh, growing market share and growing share of wallet with their core customers, um, they're all doing something that's really, really distinctive and interesting and intensely customer relevant. And you know, at the same time, you also have to execute very well. I mean, there's certainly plenty of retailers that have really cool concepts, but haven't executed very well. And so you can still get into trouble even with a, with a great idea. So I think, you know, you need that combination of great strategic design and great execution. Totally. You've given us some interesting perspective on the state of retail. What is one prediction you could give in retail over the next year or two that uh, you think is going to happen? Well, I think, well, I, I, I give, I'd say, uh, the two that I mentioned, one is kind of what we were talking about before. I think we will see, you know, the bloom will be off the rose, so to speak, on on some of these digitally native brands. Um, I think we will see some sort of shakeout start to occur there. Um, on the other side, I think, and this is more hopeful, but I am hoping we're nearing the end of the the correction, the massive correction we're seeing in store closings. Um, I certainly think we're going to still see quite a few this year, but I, I, I feel like maybe we're getting a little bit closer to an equilibrium point and, you know, there's always store closings, but I think we'll, we'll hopefully get back to a more, more moderate pace and things might settle down a little bit, but that may be, <laughs> we may have another year to go on that. I don't know, but so that may be a little bit more hopeful than uh, a confident prediction. All right, Steve, the next segment of the show is called retail wisdom. I have three questions for you. Mm -hmm. Question one, best piece of commercial real estate advice for those listeners out there? Well, I don't know if this is exactly where the question is, is going, but I, I would, I would, you know, sort of use the remarkable framework to think of, you know, really focus 
the on well two two things i guess from remarkable you know think about the whole piece of commercial real estate is needing to be remarkable and you know then focus on tenants that really have a high degree of remarkability because uh, i think those are the ones that are going to continue to to thrive and um and deliver good results great advice right there appreciate that i think the listeners will too all right second question extinct retailer you wish would come back from the dead well you know there 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 aren't that many that um that i would say that i love that went away and probably because you know not not many people love them i mean i do have a soft place in my heart for for sears which i you know do consider as i said earlier kind of effectively dead or it's certainly you know they're on their last last legs but i think you know there were so many great pieces of sears um that could have worked better and you know it just obviously didn't didn't happen man the whole sears perspective in this conversation has really enlightened me both this question and the the parts uh, that you highlighted earlier you you bring a, a lot of insights that i don't think are really well known about one of the most prolific retailers of our generation so i really appreciate that it's it, that part of the conversation has been fascinating all right. Third question. One of the hottest retail items this past Christmas season was the Breville Thermal Brewer Coffee Maker. <laughs> what is the retail price on Breville's website of that product? This is just a uh, just makes coffee, not like an espresso machine. Yes. It brews craft filtered coffee automatically. Uh, okay. Uh, $129. No, the retail price is $299.95. Wow. That better be some good coffee. This is certainly a premium product. I may have to try it out. I'm a big coffee uh, guy. Anyway, Steve, listen, wish you nothing but success. I hope your book takes off and uh, everyone on this pod podcast uh, buys it. And, you know, have a great new year and uh, wishing you nothing but success. Thanks for stopping by. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to Retail Retold. If you want to share a story about a retail real estate deal you were a part of on our show, please reach out to us. This podcast highlights the stories behind deals from all perspectives. So it doesn't matter if you are a retailer, broker, attorney, or an architect. Contact Diane Lee at D-L-E-E -E at DLCMGMT.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Retail Retold so you don't miss out on next Thursday's episode.